Welcome to Elite Team Talks, the podcast that simplifies the universal principles underpinning the world's most successful teams. I'm Henry Cheatham, founder of Elite Human Solutions. Join me as we venture into the minds of individuals who have created, led, researched, or been a part of history's most successful teams, from World Cup winning coaches to Special Forces leaders and the minds of Google. We're committed to presenting the most diverse array of thought leaders ever assembled. Through the stories and wisdom of our guests, we filter the noise, extract key insights, and deliver clear, actionable steps for you to build industry-leading teams and culture within your organization. Welcome to Elite Team Talks. Hey everyone, so today we have Dr. Ben Rosenblatt on the podcast. He's coached athletes to every Olympic game since 2008, worked in Olympic gold medal winning teams and for the last seven years led England football's physical performance department as part of Gareth Southgate's backroom team. Most recently, Ben founded his own company, 292 Performance, who provide high performance support to high performing individuals. In this episode, we discuss the five necessities for a high performing team, how Gareth Southgate's leadership team successfully engineered culture change, his most memorable moments with the England football team, and how, in his opinion, identity eats culture for breakfast. If you enjoy this episode, please like, rate, subscribe, and share with others. Thanks, as always, for listening, and I hope you enjoy the episode. All right, we're on, mate. Cool. So today we're joined by Ben Rosenblatt. Hi, Ben. How are we doing? Hello. Yeah, I'm good, thank you. How are you doing? I'm very well, thank you, mate. Yeah. So to uh, to give our viewers and listeners a little understanding around yourself and your experiences, would you mind introducing yourself and uh, giving us your background and the journey that you've been on so far? Sure. So I'm the um, founder of a company called 292 Performance. Um, we provide high-performing solutions to high-performing people and teams. Um, so mostly around physical preparation and athletic development of elite athletes, um, so that's been running for about six months now. Um, prior to that, we I was I led the physical preparation of the England football team for seven years uh, and the England football pathway, which I'm sure we'll dive into a little bit. Uh, prior to that, uh, I led the physical preparation of the Great Britain hockey team to the build up to the Rio Olympics, and then prior to that, I, w- I led the rehabilitation science of the intensive rehab unit of the British Olympic Association. Um, I've coached athletes to every Olympic Games since 2008, uh, summer and winter, and I've got a PhD in biomechanics. And I guess as a consequence of being involved in high-performance sport for so long and having to work with some really unique individuals and in quite, yeah, I guess unique, I was going to use the word challenging, but unique situations and circumstances, I became really interested in in leadership and how to how to lead them, how to be led by them, um, and then also how to, again, be led by and lead teams I'm responsible for as well, which I guess is why we're spending a bit of time chatting today. Yeah, definitely. It's a really interesting background. Am I right in thinking you also had a spell within professional football with Birmingham City too? Yeah, that's right. I forgot that. It depends how long you want to go back. <laughs> Definitely had loads of hair then. You know, yeah, I, w- I led the physical performance of Birmingham City Football Club um, in, yeah, when we got promoted to the Premier League. And then I've worked in professional football at other football clubs. 
um prior to that as well i've kind of i've been yeah consulted across sort of many organizations in sport um in military and um, and in business as well more recently around kind of physical performance and human performance um yeah and i guess that's some of my background there nice so some really diverse experience for us to dig into there i guess if we start at the beginning what was it that attracted you to being part of these teams in the first place really cool question um so it's probably something around excellence to be fair like I, I played football and boxed and I was you know I was kind of an athlete I say kind of meaning kind of um and I was working as a personal trainer but we were having a conversation earlier about sales and that's how I learned to sell sell you know because you're having to sell um sell your services very very frequently and I guess as a consequence of like being involved in football as well being an athlete and being interested in the physical preparation side of things, I kind of thought, well, I don't really want to jog people around the block for the rest of my life. I, I really want to work at this high, high level. And I think it was probably something around excellence and just a kind of sense of adventure and uh, being able to help others compete at a really, really high level and make myself better as well, which would attract me to working in these types of organisations nice nice so there's a few things there isn't there it's around service i guess and and supporting others as much as it is the excitement of the journey itself yeah yeah i guess i don't know you don't want to sound too much like you're sort of you know the humble hero or <laughs> or, or anything like that because you know you do really enjoy it but there's there's a I, I, what i think is there's a great sense of satisfaction of watching people get better you know and certainly now i get a real sense of satisfaction recognizing when individuals or teams realize that they need to make a step change or, or the next step within their performance whatever domain that might well be um and then because it just reduces all the barriers they have towards commitment and you know away they go and then really you, you're kind of they're more of a spirit guide with some of your skills and experiences than someone who's actually you know traditionally leading i guess yeah I actually had a question I was going to ask in a second, but I'd like to touch on something there you've mentioned. The word spirit guides, you know, you're someone with a PhD, you have a really good, deep understanding of the science behind high performance sport. But what is, in your opinion, the most important facet? Is it the science or is it the art? And potentially even if you dig into that, like on a spiritual level, what you're helping create or people to experience so I, I always struggle with this kind of um this whole kind of is it science or is it art and the fact that they're being placed on a kind of linear um yeah yeah like, like a kind of yeah linear like it's a scale like you're either art or science or science whatever i want to put it um because both of those things both of those concepts are just different ways of understanding the world right and actually if you spend any my wife's an artist and if you spend any time with artists you'll realize that they are completely meticulous in their preparation about producing a piece of a work um in the same way which is a scientist is is trying to create experiments to do that as well so i think what we've what, what we do is more craft orientated so we've got uh, you know without sounding like Liam Neeson we, we have a particular set of skills which we're honing and developing and deploying 
across lots of different, but hopefully lots of different situations and circumstances, and then learning how to use all of these skills and broaden them out. So, so for me, I think as a coach or as a leader, you're more of a craftsperson than a scientist or an artist. And I think building into your point around where, I guess, where does your energy come from? I think that there has to be an element of, clearly I'm involved in sports, so there's a high amount of physical energy that's required, a high amount of mental energy that's required to, to keep focusing. But I think the spiritual energy is the kind of maybe the, the connection piece and why you keep going when when it's completely ridiculous to keep going. Um, and, and I think it allows you to commit. I think th there's that brilliant um, model of um, um, intrinsic motivation, isn't there, which is autonomy, mastery and connectedness. So you're going to keep on going if you're going to commit to something and you're going to be motivated to do something if first and foremost there's a connection between what you're trying to do and what you're trying to achieve and what you're doing right now and for me that's if there's a spiritual element to it it's that you know the, the commitment the connection piece the mastery are you getting better you know and that's I, I guess that's the really important bit from a crafts perspective like how you help that person make good decisions to help themselves get better. And then the autonomy piece, are they making an active choice and a decision in the, in the work that they're doing to help them make that journey? So again, that's why I think that's probably more craft than science and art. Um, and I completely, yeah, yeah. Maybe I, I, maybe I wasn't being too flippant when I said spiritual earlier. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Let's delve into that definitely later in the conversation. And we've had some interesting discussions around behavioral science aspect of being a craftsman and, and not jamming a square peg in a round hole but to start with at the beginning of your journey i know in another podcast you'd spoken about your time in birmingham city and you said you've been very young in that role and i personally experienced the same being thrown at the deep end leading a department in a professional sports team at the age of 24 and there might be some listeners or viewers who currently feel either overwhelmed, out of their depth, or maybe just lost slightly in their goal of building a world-class team. So if you could talk to yourself now, back then, I guess, firstly, what was your biggest takeaway from this experience? And what would your advice be to either your younger self or others in this situation? So I, get, I got fired from Birmingham. So I, I took the job at Birmingham City when I was 23 as head of sports science and conditioning. And I got fired about a year and a half later because a, a player got injured um, in a training session. Now, that wasn't really the reason. You know, the, the, the real reason was that I don't think that the organisation itself was in a position to, and, and the management and et cetera, et cetera, were in a, in a position where they knew what they wanted from, I guess, my domain. Um, and then I don't think I did a good enough job of, understanding the current state of the organization and the individuals within it so i was trying to make a change which the organization or the individuals within it weren't ready to make um and rather than saying okay why is that what are the barriers to change what how do we try and address this what's actually important to these people um and how can i support that i just kept on going and went even just doubled down and went even harder um so i think the 
it was Danny Kerry, who's the head coach of GB Hockey, taught me this. He, he said, um, when we're thinking about strategy, you're like, what's most important and what's easiest to change? And I would just go back and do that and have a real look at what's most important to this team, to this group, what's easiest to change. So again, what are the things that I'm trying, I'm trying to introduce heavy strength training into football 20 years ago. Um, or maybe not quite 20 years ago, really. Um, you know, they weren't ready for that, but I just kept on pushing and pushing and pushing. So, a- again, I guess if I was to give advice to my younger self or to other people in that organisation, um, have the real humility uh, to look around you and, and see what's actually required from uh, from you within that group and then identify what the things that, are important to change and how you're going to go about doing that within the organisation. And, and I suppose recognise they not, might not be the most important things to you either. And then you've got a decision to make about whether you want to stay in that space or not. Um, and yeah, I think that I, what I thought, the stuff that was important to me, I thought was most important to everybody rather than the stuff that's most important to everyone else being the most important thing. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. I mean, it really resonates with my experiences in in a similar situation. You know, I was I was only a year older, but we're both both very young, and ultimately, I had come across from an English way of doing things in rugby, and I got there, and I was told if the ball isn't in their hands, and they're not doing anything, and it was really hard for me to to readjust. And I think also at a young age where maybe. I'm more insecure and not necessarily as, as confident in what I can help support these these players or this this group with. You uh you don't find it as easy maybe to demonstrate that humility and and to ask and to seek and that's definitely something that's that's been a huge learning um, stimulus for me in regards to the behavioural science side of things. And I know you're very interested in in that too we've had some good discussions with that one of the precursors for that 100 percent. i think i've always been really interested in people and individuals i think the other thing about is that the conditions that will like so you've taken on a leadership role when you're very very like a you know we've always got leadership roles whenever you're coaching or working with other individuals you're always a leader i think even if you're part of the team and don't have a title but you, you've got a departmental leadership role there at a very very young age and you've got high levels of responsibility there and it's probably because you were really good you're doing things really well we've been recognized for doing things really really well so you think the journey that's got you to that point is the reason why why you are and then therefore what you're what you're brought in to deliver and so i think there's probably it's quite a as a young leader or someone who has been given responsibility young the biggest challenge you're going to have is this big conflict between hang about this is the stuff i know works but it's not working here. So how? how what do you do? Um, I, I yeah. I guess the behavioural science side of things. I've became more fat. I became. I had a better way of understanding what that is later on in my career, or I've been able to articulate it. But for sure, the thing that's always stuck with me is if I was back at Birmingham City, what would I do? How would I do it? And. Up until very recently, I haven't really thought about that for the last sort of five years or so. But it was really a real driver throughout a, a large point of my career because it was 
very, very challenging environment, very challenging circumstances, challenging people. What would I do and how would I do it? Mm, but I guess maybe without us both making those mistakes, we wouldn't have been able to help as many people moving forwards. Maybe we'd have to ask them whether I've helped. <laughs> yeah, have we helped anyone? <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> awesome. Doing a bit of job of listening and watching is really important, right? Yeah, a hundred percent, hundred percent. Cool. I think it'd be nice to move on to to a slightly more enjoyable topic, maybe. Um, I, I, I'd love. I don't mind talking about that at all. Yeah, that's all good. The um the time you had with GB Women's Hockey and actually the success you experienced during that time, winning Olympic gold. I guess for those that will never be able to to win a medal at the Olympics, let alone a gold, could you just describe what that feeling was like? Well, I mean, I didn't win it. They they did. <laughs> so I think that's it. So I still don't know what it's like to win an Olympic gold medal um, but uh, or compete at the Olympics. But what I, what I recognised for that group in particular is that the, some of those those women had i think about eight years before that had very very good jobs that they decided to resign from to train full-time as an athlete at much lower salary points etc like that um and and had experienced you know if you think about that eight eight to ten years of experiencing failure and experiencing and having a huge life change to be able to go and train full-time as an athlete and try work it all out is i can't even imagine how difficult and challenging that would be for for a person so to be able to get to the point where they're able to stand on top of the olympic podium knowing the sacrifice not the sacrifices the decisions they've made and the challenges they've had to face to do that it must have just been completely overwhelming for many of them uh, and for all of them um and my role as a physical you know as a performance coach um i just felt so so happy for them and just so proud proud of them and it was one of the yeah still one of the proudest you know getting goosebumps thinking about it moment of my career and again it's just watching those guys um just completely do what they're completely capable of and just being just so, so happy for for them and all the people that have been part of that journey for such a long period of time yeah and i guess it's really rare in life isn't it people normally only see the success especially if it's something quite significant to be on the inside seeing the journey seeing what those people had to overcome and how they achieved it it's very rare and very special opportunity i think if you hang around sport enough you're going to lose a lot more than you win and certainly in terms of titles and you know you can have people some of the some of the greatest athletes could not win the Olympics or could not for very for various reasons not achieve the highest levels of success and accolades. So when those moments of success come, then they have to be celebrated and enjoyed with every inch of your life because they really are very, very rare moments. Yeah. And it obviously takes an exceptional team to win an Olympic gold medal. What one or two things do you think as a group you did exceptionally i think that the group spent a lot of time now this worked for this group okay so and i've seen it not work for other groups but i can say for this group it worked very very well they spent a lot of time identifying 
their vision, their, their vision, values, and behaviors piece, um, and really live by it. And, and we did a job. We what we try to do is whatever their you know the values and the behaviors, the, 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 particularly the values piece. We try to orientate into that into every single aspect of of the program. So. Um, one of the, our values is we are winners and some of the running conditioning sessions, we are, oh God, I'm going to forget them on, but we are one team, we are winners. I've forgotten the other one, which is terrible. But um, we would do running sessions and conditioning sessions and gym sessions, whatever they are, but we're orientated around being a winner or being one team. So the values, but th- these aren't running conditioning sessions. This is a, we, this is a winning session or this is, we are one team session. So, I think they did an amazing job of really clearly articulating their values and their behaviors and align that with their vision. And then what we try to do is just infuse that into their everyday environment. Um, they did an exceptional, that what they also had was a kind of a really well-structured decentralized leadership process or system where there was you know, where there was body groups where senior athletes were buddied up and paired with more junior athletes. Um, and that was clear and that the the small the younger athletes had the opportunity to almost be mentored by the older ones. Uh there was a, a leadership group um which had different leaders in for different parts of their preparation process. There was a physical leadership group where we would meet and discuss the training plans, the direction of travel and get their input into it and how, most importantly, how it was important to communicate, how, how to communicate the different messages to the team as well, which was really, really important. And we had a really, we had representative design in our training environment. Um, so a nice story of, so again, Danny Kerry, Karen Brown, Craig Keegan, three coaches um did an amazing job of kind of creating that training environment we did one thing called thinking thursdays which was um essentially it's kind of you know games-based conditioning if you want to call it that Uh, and the coaches were really really smart about how they would put the rules of the training drills and so it'd be like five asides six sides seven asides 11 v 11 um but the coaches wouldn't coach they would spend a lot of time beforehand identifying the rules of the game things like so say for example we wanted to get better at um, attacking somebody's back stick so if you score from attacking somebody's back stick then it's two goals rather than one goal you know if you're able to tackle that it counts for a point for your team so all these rules i I can't remember the the word now but they're all these rules and kind of conditioned practices were orientated towards the tactical objectives that we were and technical objectives we were trying to get better at and it got to the point where one of the values we had we had was that's it we always find a way to win and in the olympic final we were down in the third quarter and we came in for a huddle the players came into the huddle craig keegan brought everyone in and everyone was there expecting like okay the dutch are doing this we have to do that the dutch are doing that we have to do that and he sat there and he said we've got two minutes um we're two nil down against holland in the olympic final i can't remember the score there but um find a way to win now it's really easy for a coach to go and say that, but that was so much more meaningful because they knew exactly what that meant in terms of process 
and systems. So the girls got together, they went into their small units, they discussed the technical chat, the tactical challenges they were facing and how they were going to overcome it. Uh, as a coach, an Olympic coach in a final of Olympic Games, I thought that was the bravest thing that I, I've ever seen. But he was only able to do it, or it would have been brave or reckless, but it was brave because of the last three years they've had building up to that moment where all the squad knew exactly what that meant and the process they had to go engage in to overcome the challenge they were faced. Keys unfortunately passed away very recently. It was really sad. I'm sorry to hear that. It obviously had a big influence on you. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, that's really interesting. And and the values side of it, you often see, you know, teams, companies espousing X or Y as their values, but you then often hear of of these values not being embedded into everyday uh, life within that organisation. What do you think are the most important steps to be able to do that effectively? So what i what i've seen or what i believe is if you look at what we're really talking about culture here which is essentially a shared set of behaviors right if you look at culture from around the world why is spain different to different to portugal to france to germany to the uk to scotland to wales to, you know even within the uk within england there's you know the northwest to the northeast essentially there's behavioral norms in those small communities which are really unique to those communities now whatever business organization team you're in you're going to have behavioral norms which are unique to your team regardless of whether whether they're productive and aligned with helping you improve or whether they're destructive they're just there because that's what humans do when they bring a community the culture is your culture so one of the ways that the, the, yeah, so with the Great Britain hockey team, they spent a lot of time establishing what those values are first and then aligning behaviours with that. But I've also seen it go that when people, I've also seen that forced onto teams and that go terribly wrong as well. And actually, sometimes, um, you know, the behaviours, the expected behaviours are, um, are aligned with things like selection. Okay, so if if you and it doesn't have to be explicit, it's just implicit. People who round here do stuff like this, and if you don't do stuff like this, then you're basically not coming back. And it isn't written on a wall; it's just part of the leadership group or the leaders articulating or be able to articulate within themselves what's expected, and then just living it and doing it. So, so I think cultural change can come from those those two roads you know stuff written on the wall where's the wall or stuff which just happens on a day-to-day basis and i think the stuff that happens on a day-to-day basis is much more important um what's his name now um owen eastwood and his book belonging i think and the impact that that's had across certainly world of sport about teams trying to understand their legacy story and, and what got them what got them to that point there is a real leveler in terms of values because i think that you know at, at communities and people respond a lot better to stories that are being told rather than words that are written in the wall okay so you can lose energy if you don't feel that something that you're contributing to 
is going to be lived out in reality. So that's why the stuff that sits on the wall doesn't, because usually it's a leader saying it's that. So what? Even if you've been engaged. Whereas I think your kind of legacy story or the story that's got everybody to hear, and that being a sense of this is why we are here in this one particular, in this one space trying to do this, um, is a much more valuable way of tuning um, groups into their shared values and then expected behaviors are just really simple system of reward and neglect or punishment has that answered your question or it has really nicely yeah and there's so many takeaways for different organizations different sectors you know whether you're a FTSE 100 company or or you're a GB hockey team trying to to reach the Olympic finals and win gold ultimately who you are is going to be one of the most important important determinants of how you go about doing what you do and understanding that whether it's your origin story like you said or actually if you don't have that what is the the story you want to create together it's hugely valuable I feel that yeah, I don't know I, I feel that there's that old saying you know culture each strategy for breakfast but i wonder whether identity each culture you know having a real shared sense of identity of who we are and what we're doing here is the real thing that sets the tone yeah or maybe even a precursor culture impacts your strategy and your identity impacts your culture and you can say it's one thing but ultimately if, if those three aren't aligned you're not going to achieve what you're let's trying not, to let's not use big words right it's who we are and what we do yeah strategy is what we're gonna what we're gonna do and how we're gonna do it yeah awesome and you know leading on from this we've had quite a few discussions in regards to behavioral science side of things understanding the people the organization the environment the beliefs the values of of those that you're you're working with i'd like to um start by discussing the very important matter of the pink inflatable unicorns that were all over the front page of the newspapers during your time with england when they were was it the euros that was at the world cup back that in was the world cup sorry we had, we had other inflatable other inflatables were used were um, available yeah I, you know i think this was uh you know this was originally the brainchild of bryce kavanagh who led the kind of physical performance nutrition but performance support more generally for for the fa um and they did uh yeah bryce is like an amazing thinker and a really like really broad creative thinker as well and they did some work on our recovery project which is called the other 22 hours and essentially the aim was how can we get the players in the pool for as long as humanly possible that's the aim and we've done stuff i've done stuff previously with hockey where we used to do things like uh synchronized swimming competitions um so we'd have you know the injured girls would have to sit out by the side and be the judges but we'd have synchronized swimming competitions we'd have aquafit classes but all the evidence essentially around the impact of you know, water immersion on recovery is basically volume. The longer you spend in there, no matter what you're doing, the the better the impact is going to be for your recovery. So the challenge is, how do we get these players to spend more time in the uh, in the pool? So uh, in the Russia World Cup, we there was a bit of environmental design where 
they had to the when there was a kind of training ground and then we had a bus from the training ground back to the hotel um but they had to get changed in a training in a changing room before they went to their rooms which was next to a pool so it was kind of like really easy so some of the principles of behavior change or nudge is easy accessible social and timely so it was really easy to get in the pool um seeing the uh, it was accessible because it was literally right there seeing the unicorns there were social so it was you're going to go in there because it's a social thing to do and it's timely we're not trying to do a recovery session at six in the morning when people aren't even well we'll say people wake up but they probably won't be awake then you're doing it at the time when they probably want to recover anyway so those were the kind of nudge-based principles that we then deployed across every everything we did really to try and get better adherence to some of the things which he thought would be really helpful for them um everything from um lucky dip with timers in the ice bath so we had the, these egg timers that, that I'm, I'm painting they were all the same color so some of them lasted for 30 seconds some lasted 10 minutes you know lucky dip see how long you you go in there for if you're in for 30 seconds most of them will stay for the full 10 minutes right um things like we stole their trainers um and the, we put them in the swimming pool area so that they had to essentially get there to get their trainers things like water balloon fights which actually had a a um kind of counter yeah it was bad behavior bad, bad kind of nudging really because what we found was the guys that were in the water had all the water balloons there were six of them in the water and they were just pelting everyone else who were staying out of the water you so, included or were you, you safe know, behind someone? But six, <laughs> six players had a great recovery session and 45 players, sorry, <laughs> 18 players were dipping and diving and trying to not get wet. Um, yeah, so it's, it's everything from there to like how we gamify our training environment. So things like trying to make the, when we're trying to get them to essentially deliver more intensity within their S&C environment, the strength and conditioning environment, how do we help them engage with the work they're doing? Well, we make a competition and make sure there's a competition where everyone has to contribute to it. If one person isn't in the competition, they let the whole team down. Um, and then there's a reward for it, like a stupid boxing belt, or there's a time on it, or, th- you know, just things like that uh, to just encourage them to, you know, interact with the environment in the way that you want to. No, it's fascinating. And, it sort of leads into the next question, which is about a lot of companies, I think, realizing that the traditional autocratic, maybe hierarchical approach isn't necessarily the best, especially for the generations coming through. If you're trying to create an environment where people achieve their full potential, fun, obviously, based off the discussions we've had and what you've just described there was a key part of creating a winning environment with the England football team. But if we zoom out, in general, what do you think are two or three crucial components to get the best out of your team from an environment perspective? I think clarity is really, really important. Being completely clear on what you're being, what your role is within a team. I'm going to think it, see if I can keep it all in C's, right? Clarity, completely clear on what your role is within a team um and 
what other people's roles are and what kind of what you're there to do. Consistency, does that kind of stay the same? And is there a theme to that? So that it's not one thing one day, one thing the next. You're, you're clear and consistent because I think that breeds um, confidence um, where you actually you gain personal value from this thing, how you're contributing to a team. Um, yeah, and I, I suppose that's also aligned with your competence as well. Um, and I think the final one is contribution as well. Have you had the opportunity to contribute to the direction of travel? A lot, a lot, a lot of people don't want to, actually. You know, sometimes you find a lot of people just tell me what to do, so that's why I think clarity is really important. But the opportunity to contribute is also really, really important as well. So I think in terms of winning teams, clarity on role, is it aligned with what you're competent at? Can you, you know, are you able to have the opportunity to deliver that consistency and, and as a team grow confident from it? Um, and then again, yeah, have, have, do you have the opportunity to contribute as well? Five Cs, you heard it here first. Trademarked. B. Rosenblatt, 2023. I mean, the problem is, as you say one or two things beginning with C, everything else has to begin with a C. Mate, you, it rolled off the tongue. What do you think we're missing? It's interesting. A lot of what you've described there is built into a framework that I use with companies and ambitious teams, which, funnily enough, is the five Ps. So there's the something oh, here. But uh, <laughs> not Cs, not Cs. There's no copyright infringement. But yeah, I think, to be honest, different parts of those five Ps are weighted differently. And the five Cs that you've just described there are some of the, in my opinion, most important pillars for a high-performing team. Like you've said, clarity, self and spoken about, so often missing. Yeah. And if you have that, and ultimately you understand like we spoke about earlier, who you are, how you want to do it, what you want to do. As long as then you have people who, if we steal it from our, our good friend James King, um, in your sweet spot where your interests, values and skills intersect, then ultimately, as long as you've got people in those roles with that clarity, Ultimately, it's, it reminds me of a bit of a phrase that they used when I worked in special forces, which is, you know, this could be applied to a man or woman, but in their case, it was find the right man and let him get on with the job. And I mean, if if our job was that easy, it would be fantastic. But ultimately, there's a lot of truth to that. And find the definitely, right. yeah. And uh, and what you've you've said there with those five Cs, I think probably covers nine percent of most challenges to create a sustainable world-class team i think there's each individual within a team and each team itself it's almost like an amplifier right some team are going to require more or individuals are going to require more clarity if this is a new task so i'm, I'm doing a bit of work for a, an organization um and it's new to them it's new to me they brought me in to come and do this one particular thing. You know, I'm an experienced coach. I've got leadership experience. And what I'm doing there is give me, and what I'm saying is, I don't want to contribute. I don't want to contribute to the direction of travel here. Give me complete clarity on what you're expecting for me to do here. And give me clarity on what you want the outcome to be. 
And then I can have confidence that I'm going to go away and, and do it. And, and also, have I got the competence to actually go and do that? So what help do I need? Or so I, versus other situations um, where I'm being brought into an organisation to support something else. It's like, okay, I don't need the clarity on what I'm here to do or what the situation is. The most important thing is I've got the opportunity to contribute to the direction of travel here based on what I'm observing and what I'm seeing, what you know, what I'm hearing as well and what I'm feeling. Um, so I think I was thinking initially that a more junior or underdeveloped team might require more clarity rather than contribution. But but actually, I think as a, as a leader, you've got to recognise where your balance is uh, personally and what balance you require from that team as well. Yeah, that, that ability to... Sorry, go on. No, go ahead, mate, yeah. No, I was just going to say that ability to understand the people, the environment and the climate is, you know, yeah. one of the most important things, isn't it? That EQ element. Yeah, 100%. I, th I think so. So you've been part of one of the most successful periods in the history of English football. I mean, you reached the semi-finals of the 2018 World Cup and you made it to the 2020 Euro finals. And ultimately, there's going to be a hell of a lot to have remembered fondly and enjoyed and experienced but what was your best moment of the last eight years oh, uh, yeah actually yeah two of them beating germany at wembley um yeah beating germany at wembley was pretty cool for um they yeah, the quarter the kind of last 16 of the euros and then uh, after we won the semis against Denmark, being able to look into the crowd and see my brother and my wife celebrating as everyone's singing Sweet Caroline was pretty, that they're really, really strong, kind of strong, strong memories. Um, I think the thing that, that those are the ones that really stand up with a load of emotion, but also the, the, when, I, when I think even further about it, we were trying to make a physical change, the physical training culture of the of the team and the organisation, and ultimately the game. So some of the stuff that really stands out is when players had come through an SNC session before uh, before training, and they, you know, you're looking around and everyone's doing something individual, which is aligned to what's important to them. They're attacking it with real intensity. Um, they're getting better and they're getting confident from the work they're doing. And I remember thinking a few times, like, fucking almost nearly being in tears, like, wow, fuck me, like, we're actually, this is happening, we're doing it. And that was kind of, yeah, you know, there's not as many people celebrating with you at that particular point in time. <laughs> it's usually just you. But, um, yeah, the, the, I, I guess those are the moments that are probably more stand out. For, uh, you know, as stand out really for me. Equally pinch me, isn't it? I mean, I can attest to that, having worked in some environments where ultimately success was dependent on culture change and, and that culture being deeply rooted and ingrained. And you go through some periods where you feel like you're banging your head against the wall. Are we actually making a difference? And And then every now and again, you get that one example that one beacon of of optimism because you see someone who you know has always taken a different route decide to take 
the mm. new route and yeah i totally get that as as a coach and i'm sure as as a lot of people listening in corporate space will attest to you, you don't always have those wins every day you can have long periods can't you where you know that the work you're doing is you know of a high quality let's say and that ultimately you've experienced success with it in the past but but you're waiting waiting to see whether those those artifacts of that work is is going to come to fruition and when you do it's very very sweet i was just coaching this morning and i was reminded i was you know reminding an athlete of that that learning sweet spot which is essentially the things that really when you really are keep you know hungry and keep pushing and keep pushing it's not because you get success every single time and actually if you look at skill acquisition and motor learning research I can't remember what the exact percentage is, but you know, I don't want to say 80, 20 because that's so overdone, maybe 79, 21%. But the, the balance of failure to success is far more towards failure than success. And when you're trying to learn a new skill or learn a new task and to be able to execute it under the most challenging of situations and circumstances, you only need to see a little glimmer of success every now and again to keep you hungry and keep you pushing on. And that's the thing which will allow you to get your 10,000 hours or like just those repetitions, those deep, deep repetitions again and again and again. And uh, yeah, that, that, uh, yeah. And when you make that change, when the change ultimately happens, again, similar to motor learning, if you imagine it's riding a bike, once you've learned how to ride a bike, you can't unlearn how to ride a bike. You know how to do it. So the change is wobble, wobble, wobble. Oh, I can do it. I can do it. You're off, right? The next thing to do is, again, within my learning, coaching, I think maybe around leadership as well, is once that change has happened, it's like, okay, what what do we do with this now to keep it stretching? Because if you don't, it will just degrade. If you if you spend long enough not riding a bike, once you've learned to do it, next time you jump on, you've forgotten how to do it. Yeah, and piggybacking nicely off of that and change, you know, you've worked in the leadership group with the England football team since probably around the same time as, as Gareth Southgate came in. Ultimately, at that point, from my understanding, the team were underperforming relative to their potential. You know, for listeners or viewers responsible for turning their team's performance around, and obviously I'm not expecting um, you to to say it was it was that person or that person but what one or two things would you suggest people do first when stepping into an environment where a team are underperforming i think that my experiences not just within football but across my career has been that you know do a real thorough situational analysis frankly and just and trying to do it from a very, very dispassionate and unemotional perspective. And then also recognising that it's probably not just you who are going to have the answers to that as well. So getting lots of eyes on, yeah, getting lots of eyes on the situation from a variety of different perspectives, mostly of who you would probably naturally disagree with, I think is really important because it allows you to get rid of any biases that you have and to be very, very dispassionate about what, you know, what the steps that you're going to take to help that team progress and evolve. I think that, you know, talking about the England football team, you know, I had 
a minor role in it from a kind of my role was to yeah change the physical training culture and help prepare them physically for the demands of the tournament and the demands of the uh yeah the, the yeah the demands of the tournament and the demands of the game but I think you know honestly that was a there was a huge piece of work going on with a lot of very very significant and senior leaders within the organization over a very very long period of time which the team is starting to reap the benefits from right now you know people of whom I wouldn't even be able to mention or know because they were before my time um so I think it's really important and I, I think that yeah it, it, that, that's really really important to recognize the very fact that the football which had been traditionally quite insular with its recruitment decided to recruit someone who had limited football experience but experience with high you know high variety of Olympic and elite sports into work with the, the, the national senior team lead physical preparation probably tells you quite a lot about the conditions I guess the leadership conditions that were in place to be able to invite change you know there was a, when, when I stepped in there was a big moment around things need to change we want to change you know and probably that in itself is a, is a big enough rock that you need to shift just to put the record yeah I, I guess the, the point where everybody in there recognized that something needs to shift and then it's just working it but you can't change things if people don't recognize that something needs to shift right mm. yeah it's the good old ad car model isn't it the first to awareness and desire and as long as people have the awareness of the need for change not just that the change is happening and then the actual desire to be a part of that change and for the change to occur you then have knowledge ability all these other areas but as you've said if you don't have that in the first place you're spending 10x trying to reinforce change as opposed to x setting the scene for change and ensuring the conditions are right i think the you mentioned that as well in some of our previous conversations the condition for change is you know the landscape or the environment for change is so so critical PhD was in biomechanics and motor learning and I, I wonder if there's some nice parallels there we've got to study dynamic systems theory which is essentially the the outcome of any action is going to be dictated by the demands of the environment the task itself and the kind of the organism and in which case you know in the mechanical terms like the, the biomechanical terms the athlete but I wonder if you think about that slightly more more broadly the outcome from any um the, the outcome of any actions that a team are going to create are going to be dependent on the task and i suppose their competence within that the 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 the, the group that are making up that team and the environment in which they sit as well and, and the kind of more organizational structure with which when they sit as well so it, you can't ignore the conditions for change and then being present as well yeah oh that's great and you've helped be a as you've very humbly said a small part a cog in leading you know one of the most successful periods in the history of english football as well as obviously the the awareness desire etc that you've spoken about for change being necessary what one or two things have you done differently to previous england teams based off your understanding i think that Again, what I what I I'm going to be careful about what I say because what I don't want to come across is that anything going on before I was there over the last 
100 years of England football has been anything other than excellent because it, it has been. Um, I can say the things that I felt were important were, I, I think when I stepped when we stepped in, we recognised that fundamentally the players didn't have the physical capability to be able to train with the intensity that we required on a day-to-day basis. Um, and then in order to be able to compete at that level as well, so we went through a process of trying to understand that through physical profiling, through testing the players, which was really controversial within, um, you know, within uh, many of the Premier League clubs didn't think it was our role or our right to do that at that particular point in time. Um, but we thought that was really important to gauge an understanding of the physical characteristics of the squad to help us gauge whether it was a physical capacity problem or there was a different side to the problem. And we uncovered that there was probably some issues around how the players were preparing physically, but on England camps and some issues around maybe, yeah, and, and some issues that they had around their kind of longer term physical development as well. So that was kind of the first thing we did. Uh, and then I think that, so I guess from a business perspective, it's kind of assess, but, but have the courage to do assessments that are not going to be well received. There was a hell of a lot of friction around that, uh, internally and externally. I think the um, the next thing was we tried to be well, tried to be very, very, very deliberate about understanding the ecosystem and the environment, um, and then the players themselves. So we um, so in terms of understanding the ecosystem, we did a really thorough, thorough job of under of looking at every single football club and their physical training model, how they prepared physically, what their values were, what their beliefs were, what their behaviours were around physical training. Um, to try and understand the conditions or the, the conditions that each player was kind of preparing in. And that, that was the most important thing we did to understand what they were doing. Because then if there's a change that needs to take place, you know which part, which dial you can turn. If this club doesn't believe in strength training, then by saying to them that this player needs to put another 50 kilos on their back when they're squatting, it's going to be ridiculous because they're not squatting anyway. But if they take, you know, more of a tissue conditioning based model, for example, then we can talk about it through this lens. So understanding those conditions and also understanding the friction points that existed between the national team and the clubs. So it felt like they were making a really positive contribution the national team as well was I think was really important so it's building a stronger sense of connection by understanding their world and inviting them to contribute to and understand ours a little bit um I think also the things were important to me was understanding the player so we we did some work with uh, the nudge unit of the government which is now the behavioral insights team which is an independent uh, organization and they taught us a lot about combi modeling um and um it was actually mike Naylor who is uh, the head of performance nutrition for uk sport institute and leads performance nutrition for the england senior team brought that to our attention and essentially what that is is that players are athletes are only able to change their behaviors as a consequence of their capability their opportunity their motivation to change um, so capabilities and knowledge skills experience opportunity is the environmental conditions this stuff here motivation is the motivational psychology which we spoke about earlier which is 
autonomy, mastery, and connectedness. So what we try to do, we call it durability mapping from the Russia World Cup to the Euros, is we try to identify in an interdisciplinary way what were the things that were going to stop each player starting. So what were the physical things which were going to stop the players getting to the start line of the Euros? And then understanding prioritizing that what are the most we have across again whether nutritionally physically psychologically whatever it is so trying to identify what that's one or two single thing was what's most important what's easiest to change and then identifying whether it was a capability issue their knowledge skills and experience an opportunity issue the conditions within their club or a motivational issue um and then by being very, very deliberate about that, we're able to identify one or two things for each player and the one or two key barriers for each player, which meant that we're now going from trying to solve this big, huge problem about cultural change to trying to solve the one very, very specific problem for each individual. And guess what? When you talk to a player about and you've got their contribution to that as well. What's your weapons? What's your work on to that type of stuff? And guess what? When you try to tackle it in a much, much smaller, more narrow field, you have a lot greater success. And so by the time we were getting towards the World Cup, we were then able to start talking to players about giving them real clarity about this is what the next three or four months looks like for you. This is the demands of the World Cup. Where do you see your gaps? And, and because there was a real strong sense of trust and connection as a consequence of going through that journey up until that point. Yeah, it's fascinating stuff. And I remember when you introduced me a while back to the combi model of behavior change. And and ever since then, it's it's been integrated into a lot of what I've done and has helped, like you say, just really strip away the nice-to-haves and understand what is the biggest obstacle here and to be able to almost transport yourself empathetically into the individual or the group's perspective. And it does just make the whole behavior change process a hell of a lot simpler being very very i think we talk about culture yeah it can just be a bit too ethereal and abstract you know this kind of bit like thing that you're trying to change versus actually or yeah or trying to make the players better physically capable of doing this it's like it's it's kind of quite abstract really whereas if you can make it really really discreet um for each individual which is it's a large setup task to do, but once you nail it for each individual, their rate of learning and acceleration of their kind of rate of learning and their rate of connection to the program, the plan goes through the roof, and very very quickly you then have this these conditions where you can take the team or the squad or the individual wherever you really want to. Yeah, it, I think it links back nicely to what we were discussing earlier about you either spend X amount of time understanding the climate and the need for change and the barriers, or you spend 10X just trying to reinforce it and, and bang your head against the wall. And it sounds like as an organisation, you guys really st- took a step back and and viewed it with very diverse perspectives and invested a lot into that process of of understanding what are the key things we need to go 100% dialed in on and and what are the things that are ultimately not stopping us from getting to where we want to be. Yeah, uh, like you say, what's the difference between the kind of, yeah, 
I guess use the words nice to have and needs to have, but we're like really leveling down on what the most important things are for those individuals or for the group and really just being ruthless in your pursuit of that rather than, and I guess, you know, reflecting back on my Birmingham City experiences, even if they didn't align with my values, my skills, things which I knew worked, and still recognising that that's still the most important thing for that person there. So I better get to learn about that. Yeah. And it links nicely into the next question, which is largely from an outsider's perspective. It seems like there's been a really clear emphasis on team connection and with that unifying purpose of inspiring and uniting the nation that's been, you know, quoted in, in the media. You've spoken before about how you threaded values into the everyday work but how did you thread this larger than life purpose into your everyday work and in your opinion how could teams and organizations do the same That's, yeah i think that it makes me think of that kind of aristotle's logic of I assume we're all here to do this. I assume we're all here to do that. And as a consequence, it means we've done this and we need to agree to that. So let's go. So there's some, do you, do you see what I mean? So it, it, I think it be, can be quite easy without it becoming quite abstract. But I think that I, I really, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of torn here because I feel that yeah that piece around your aspiration and what you're trying to do should be really strongly connected to your identity and who you are right but it shouldn't be there's definitely shouldn't be a disconnect there therefore that should almost be something which lives with you every single day and it's just a part of who you are because it's part of who we are so you wouldn't set an ambition for a team of inspiring the nation unless it was really part of the legacy story or the kind of origin story of that group anyway, and making sure that everyone understood that that origin story. You know, if the it, it would be weird for a team that I would be part of to be something like, you know, I don't know, sell more bananas. I don't know, just some sort of weird kind of, do, do, do you see what I mean? So I think that it should be so strong. I think the, I think the, I guess what I'm saying is, and you probably have to edit all over that crap I just waffled on about there out. There should be a strong, really strong sense of connection between the ambition and the vision and the identity, uh, who you are and then what you're trying to achieve. Because if that bit's not connected, then there's no chance of it living in a day -to -day, on a day-to-day -day basis. It's, bo it's basically bollocks, right? And then I think it's just getting to work on a day-to-day -day basis on... The, that craftsmanship of making sure you're just becoming excellent and the things that are your role and the things that make you part of that team, that clarity, consistency and connection piece and com competence piece, sorry. So I, I think they kind of live separately, but they infuse. If there's a disconnect between identity and vision, then it can't live every single day. Um, and if you have clarity within the role, opportunity to contribute those C's we spoke about earlier, then I think there's, they should be automatically connected to the vision because it's connected to who you are anyway. Yeah, that makes sense. Having alignment between who we are, what we want to do, 
how we want to do it is is going to be the 80 20 i guess of living that larger than life purpose yeah i think so because you know every single day when you're in a team like that you're not if you're thinking every single day oh, i'm going to win the world cup you know this is you know it's kind of do or die about whether this helps you win the world cup or this helps you win the olympics or not then you know the, the amount of pressure you're putting on every single action and stuff is like it's kind of ridiculous but if winning the olympics or winning the world cup is part of your personal identity and the things that are in you know that your team identity or behaving in a certain way is part of your identity then there's a much easier connect between who you are and what you're doing yeah no i, I totally agree that makes total sense and with any highly ambitious team like england team like gb hockey there's always going to be periods of disappointment I mean, you mentioned the ratio of, of failure to success from a, a wins-loss perspective. Um, what were these experiences like for you in hindsight? What advice would you give yourself? And is there anything you would do differently? I think the ability to detach yourself from the outcome is really important, Mark, personally, and actually more about yeah, what you were trying to achieve. I know in Olympic sport world at the moment, they're doing things like a called a pre-mortem. So before the event, what they're expecting to happen. And then what are the things that could go wrong and how are you going to kind of overcome that if they do? Um, for me, as long as I've got real clarity going into a situation about what we're trying to achieve, how I'm trying to, how we're trying to achieve it, um, and what our kind of critical measures of success are and being able to reflect on them, then for me, that's more important than, it's not more important than the result at all, actually, but that's the important thing for me to reflect on, you know, and detach myself from, because at the end of the day, if those signals are all trending up, but the results are trending down, then I've got to change the signals and I've got to change the things that I'm responsible for because it's not helping the performance or not helping the, the result. Um, so the way I navigate disappointment is essentially making sure I've got complete clarity about um, what I'm there to do, how I'm there to do it, and what signs and signals I'm using to measure whether that's contributing or not. And I probably get more... If we've had a, tra a camp where we've... We've won a couple of games, but there's been a complete disaster in terms of what I've tried to achieve, have tried to do it, and my signs and signals. Then that's going to eat at me a lot more than the overall result. Um, maybe that's because I'm not playing the game or I'm not the head coach or the manager, right? But those are the things I'm responsible for to helping the team win. And at the end of the day, I know if that I keep, if my personal losses keep stacking up, then that's not going to help the team eventually. Yeah, so it's ultimately, like you said, that maybe to a certain extent subjective detachment from the outcome so that you can view it with a more objective lens. And that's obviously a hugely beneficial thing to be able to strip away bias and to be able to understand the root cause of maybe why, like you've spoken about, the actions didn't align with the outcome that you desired. What would, sort of evolving off of that, what would your take be for people who are so invested in achieving x whether it's in the sports arena or whether it's in the stock market or whether it's just a 
problem which they want to solve for humanity and the ability to detach yourself from the outcome in relation to identity because obviously often it's people that invest a huge amount of time a huge amount of their life into the pursuit of these things but how sustainable is it to go all in versus being able to have other facets to your identity that allow you to detach so i think that in order to be if you look at some of the greats and some of the best people that i've worked with best athletes i've worked with who have serial olympic gold medalists most successful footballers in the world the thing that they've all got in common is that they're master craftsmen they're completely ruthless competitors they've got the capacity to be able to divert all their energy and resources and attention to that one thing at that one particular point in time they're ruthless in the pursuit of that um and they um but they're complete master craftsmen you know that they are you know meticulous about their individual techniques and you know everything like that so they're obsessed with kind of their craft um and as a consequence because they're so good that there's then such a strong connection between their craft and the outcome um so i, I also think each but they've also got a bit the best people i've worked with have also got the ability to switch their resources from all in on this one thing at that particular point in time to i don't think it's all out it's just all in onto the next particular thing at that point in time so if they're with their family they're with their family they're not in the game you know if they're in the game or if they're training whatever they are training they're not anywhere else so i think and i've unfortunately worked with several athletes that have had severe mental health problems and actually you know suicide or suicide attempts post sport when their identity is is completely wrapped up in what they're delivering uh in their sports arena so i don't think it's the ability to switch off is really really important but i think it's the ability to switch on to something else is really really important so and then the best people that i've worked with are the ones you can focus we're, we're doing a podcast now and i'm not fo- i'm focusing on you and what you're saying and what you're listening to you know when this is done i won't be thinking about it we'll be focusing on whatever's going on next i will be because i'm not a superb performer right but <laughs> i'll be reflecting on that and going why did i swear or something like that but do, do, do you see what i mean so i and i think balance isn't the aspiration i don't think uh you know ego detachment is the aspiration but the ability to focus on whatever's in front of you with complete ruthlessness and clarity and go deep on that is really important and whether that is being a master craftsman in your craft i get i don't know i've never worked with a trader but i guess it's you know someone trying to make a load of money on the stock market but when the stock market shuts down they have to be able to divert their resources and attention to something else because otherwise they will wear themselves out that's just mm. kind of your physiology right 100% yeah that ability to be present you know and that, i guess that's a skill you know i'm i'm a big fan of meditation i've used it for 
a while now and one of the things i've just again speaking off personal experience found is that ability to be present is a skill and i have to continually practice that and it doesn't mean it's always necessarily on my mind but when i've maybe been a little less consistent with just daily meditation i start to notice that my thoughts are drifting that i'm not engaging as much in whatever i'm doing now and and obviously that can apply to as many things as possible it can apply to when you're at your work but it can also apply as you said to when you're with your family yeah i think that that's interesting you say i, I notice that i'm in meditate daily as well and when i notice that i haven't when i come back to meditation i just recognize how cluttered my mind is how busy it is and that makes me think how cluttered is my mind when I'm meant to be focusing on the task in hand? And I don't think meditation is for everyone, right? I completely understand it's not for everyone, but just having, and some people are, listen, in the same way that some people don't have to lift the weight or, or you know, run a, or run to get strong or fit. They're just some freaks out there. It's probably the same mentally as well, right? Not everyone needs to do these different things. But as long as you, it's wrecked, but I guess, is recognizing the balance of your skill set. And if there, you know, if there is something there which involves deep focus and then you're struggling to be able to keep on putting deep focus into the tasks that are really important to you, there's probably something about you're probably not focusing enough on the tasks that are in front of you because you're not focusing enough on the tasks that are in front of you when you're away from the important one, right? Yeah, without a doubt. Without a doubt. It's sort of the discussions we've had in regards to as you said developing like physically robust players you know the concept of of robustness or even if i quote you know nasim talib's book anti-fragile where he talks about things that not only gain from chaos and disorder but they need it to thrive in a highly like chaotic unpredictable world now as an outsider again I noticed that the team appeared to be just as strongly connected or even stronger after difficult experiences. It sounds like you also as a team were really reframing adversity and failure as an opportunity rather than a threat. You know, you saw those as things that you needed, not just, ah, we've lost, but like this is a natural part of where we want to get to. What can we learn from it? Like, Like you've spoken about. Was that something that was spoken about or do you think that was something that more organically happened just due to the, the environment that you'd created? Yeah, there was definitely, again, been involved in, yeah, known, we've known in sport for a while about the challenge threat axis, right? And that if you're able to pursue the kind of, excuse me. Bless you. Excuse me. Bless you. We've known for a while about that challenge for axis, and if if you with the, faced with the same situation, if you're able to perceive it as a challenge or able to perceive it as a threat, it's going to change how you perceive a situation, and then how you what your physiological and psychological response to that is. And certainly, that's something the team went into a lot of detail in around penalties, and part of that comes from we had that experience with hockey as well, which is. You know, we won the Olympics on a, and the European Championships on a shootout. And the uh, part of that comes from recognising, you know, looking around corners, sniffing danger, knowing it's coming, having a clear plan around what we're going to do around it, that everyone's got the opportunity to contribute to. Um, and then, you know, that's the whole kind of 
find a way to win thing as well. We we have faced these. We don't know the specific situation, but we face challenging ones. And this is beforehand. This is the process we we kind of go through. And part of that is as well is that perceiving things as a challenge rather than a threat. So in this particular situation, we we're going to perceive it as a challenge. Yeah, and as you said, your whole psychology and physiology changes. You get that dopamine drive, don't you? Rather than that that cortisol release. I think that's what, again, I think that's what the best coaches I've worked with have done is they teach athletes how to respond to stressful situations. So whether it's the model of recognise, adapt, overcome, or, you know, eyes up, win the next action, whatever that thing is, that is essentially, and I think that's what great leaders do, or great coaches, sorry, do, is they teach athletes and great athletes teach each other athletes how to respond to those situations. So your training, in my mind, shouldn't then represent every single potential disaster scenario that could come up because that's impossible. But what your training should do is teach your team and your individuals how to respond to really challenging situations which could be perceived as high threats. And is that something that you screened for when you were looking at which players you wanted to be a part of your team? Or was it something that you looked to develop once they were within? I only ask because in my five years that I've just had working with special forces, a huge part of the selection process there is layering on the physical and psychological stress to peel back the layers that we all portray of who we want people to think we are and who we even think we are ourselves and you get down to the real core of each person and you understand these things like whether they're able to reframe you know something that might be seen to some as a threat as an opportunity or whether they're able to gain from adversity and and thrive as opposed to become overwhelmed and i'd be interested to know whether that factors into recruitment or whether you by and large look to create that once you have that team formed i think that the experiences that i have around that are that there's essentially it's a meritocracy in some regards, right? Because by the time you get to those teams, you have to have demonstrated attributes like that in very, very stressful and demanding circumstances anyway. Now, I think the thing is, though, you're never really going to know until you get to that moment. And even then, that moment might, might not define. I always think about it if, you know, if someone goes like... Oh, if someone breaks into my house, I'll get my baseball bat and I'll knock around it. And yeah, you, you might do that one night, but then one night you might be half asleep and dozing and scared and you might not. So like each each situation is very, very kinetic and different. So I think that there's a natural screening process that takes place within sport. And then I think the environments that you set, either that you have available to you either through competition or through training, give you the opportunity to further expose and then understand. But I think fundamentally in the highest 
pressures of situations or games that coaches and I'm I'm not a coach, so I don't I can't speak to this experience. But what I've observed across sport is that coaches are constantly making the balance of the team and you know yeah the team and yeah what the balance is like if you've got everyone who's a complete warrior and is able to handle these massive situations but have got zero tactical skills or athleticism you know there's 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 always just going to be a balance across the team and I think that's what they're constantly you know that's why they get paid the big bucks right because they're constantly having to make a, a, a decision around risk and consequence and I think from that there is never it seems to me that there is never ever a situation which is without risk or threat or consequence with any decision that you're going to make but it's about knowing what those risks are and being comfortable to live with them right that's the ultimately that's the the challenge of leadership and and selection I guess what's really interesting is, is, is probably the individual sports that I work with as well and the individual athletes that you work with because yeah they can't lean on other people in those situations or circumstances and it's only up to them and that's where you have to really help those athletes grow and develop some of those attributes and skills and at the end of the day i i do believe within reason because we're not talking about joe blogs person off the street we're talking about some pretty extreme characters and individuals anyway it's just about finding a way of accessing that for them and helping them find their way of you know performing under these extreme conditions very interesting i'd love to finish if you're happy with a little word association sure (laughs) (laughs) he says not sure if i should agree to this yeah i don't know what you it's it's all PG, don't you worry. Nothing to worry about. Could not be, yeah. Let's go. <laughs> um, so we'll we'll kick it off. The first is culture, identity, values, behaviors, purpose, ambition, England, winning, pressure, love it, failure, love it. Football. You can't have the same team, but we'll let you off. We'll let you off. Um, football. Let's say I wanted to say love it, but that's rubbish, isn't it? I can't say. It. <laughs> oh, um, challenge. Family. Love. Big love. Love. Big love. I said love it last time. Okay, family and purpose. No, I put love for nine as well, but you've just said love. You just said love. Uh, <laughs> and the last one legacy overrated nice thank you very much for your time thank you thank you really for, enjoyed uh, it thank you for making me sweat <laughs> <laughs> i'm sure you'll return the favor yeah, don't worry yeah yeah no that was brilliant and there's so much i think from that that people will find if not insightful but also really practical you know a lot of the stuff you spoke about um that you've integrated even just some of the ways of like framing behavior change and and it's obviously really fun for people to hear your stories and your journey but at the same time i think it's important for people to be able to actually take something away from it too and you've you've absolutely nailed that mate so i really appreciate it 
Hopefully, but I've only, I don't profess to be an expert in any of these areas. And I also tried very, I tried not to speak other people's experiences, but only spoke my own. own. So hopefully that's useful in some way. Yeah, you've nailed it, mate. It's fantastic. Hi again, everyone. So thank you for listening. I hope you really enjoyed my discussion with Ben today. I found it really insightful. And what I'd like to do first is to summarize what we spoke about, and then we'll move on to the three key takeaways for this episode. So let's start by discussing purpose. And Ben basically said that your purpose is your why for why you keep going when it's completely ridiculous too. And for Ben, that was about service and supporting others as much as it is about the excitement of the journey itself. He explains self-determination theory, which really explains three crucial components that deeply motivate us as humans. These are autonomy, connection, and mastery. And if you really want to motivate your people, then you need to be leveraging all three of these. In regards to developing a clear purpose, the GB women's team that he worked in and won an Olympic gold medal with spent a lot of time defining and incorporating their vision, mission and values into every single aspect of their work and language. But Ben describes how culture is actually far less about what's written on the wall and far more about what's lived every day. It's a shared set of behaviours or otherwise known as your behavioural norms. Who you are is actually one of the most important determinants of this. And whilst culture may eat strategy for breakfast, Ben believes that identity eats culture. We reference Owen Eastwood's book, Belonging, which provides a great approach to understanding your origin story and identity, or quite simply, who you are as an organisation or team. Most importantly, you wouldn't set the ambition to inspire a nation like the England football team did if it wasn't aligned with your origin story. There needs to be a really strong connection between your origin story and then your vision, mission and values, aka who you are, what you want to do and how you want to do it. And in Ben's words, if this isn't there, then it's bollocks. People will see it as a marketing project. And in the words of Socrates, you really need to know thyself. So question to ask yourselves, what is the story your people tell themselves or others about who they are and who your company are? That ultimately will be one of the biggest factors in dictating your mission, vision, values and culture. The next thing that we spoke about was hiring the right people. And Ben spoke about how football had originally been quite insular in regards to recruitment. And it showed their leadership's commitment to inviting change and bringing diverse people, skills and experience by actually recruiting Ben in the first place who had a high variety of experience with Olympic and league sports to bring some fresh perspectives and insights. He actually related this back to something called dynamic systems theory, which he studied when he was studying biomechanics for his PhD. And basically, it's a fancy name for just saying the outcome of any action is dictated by the environment, the task and the actual organism, say humans or teams. So he'd previously looked at this from a biomechanical perspective, but believed it applied just as much to the team. And you could relate the environment to the organisational structure, as an example, the task to winning games in his perspective, or winning market share in yours, and the organism is to the team and the individuals itself. So basically, the outcome is the combination of the environment, for example, the organisational structure, the task, trying to win X or Y, and the organism, the team and individuals within it. In regards to driving cultural change, 
Ben spoke about how GB Hockey had a well-structured, decentralised leadership system, which was actually quite similar to what Scott Draw had mentioned on a previous podcast as being necessary to empower people and develop leaders across a whole organisation. However, some people don't work in an empowering environment like this. And so the advice he'd give to people who at times feel frustrated, overwhelmed or stuck at work due to bureaucracy is first to look at what's most important and what's easiest to change. Maybe ranking these on a scale of 1 to 10 each or plotting them on a diagram. The next thing is to have the humility and empathy to understand the situation and others' perspectives before navigating it. When you can come at a conversation from the individual's perspective that you're having that conversation with, demonstrating that you've taken the time to understand their point of view and why they might hold a certain opinion, it's going to result in a far higher likelihood of that conversation being productive and successful. Ben worked in the leadership group since Gareth Southgate came in and the team were underperforming. If you are moving into an environment or a team where maybe you aren't realising your full potential, His advice is firstly to do a thorough situational analysis, most importantly from a dispassionate, unemotional and objective perspective, recognising that it's not just you that's going to have answers on it. So what should you do? You should seek people with different views and perspectives to also have a look, especially those who challenge you, however uncomfortable that may be. And this is going to reduce bias and potentially reframe culture problems for innovative solutions. He said that he can't speak on behalf of previous England teams, but he personally felt the players didn't have the physical capacity to train with the intensity they needed on a day-to-day basis to be the best. This was obviously controversial, and Premier League clubs felt it wasn't England football's place to screen players on this, but they knew it was crucial to provide them with the necessary insights surrounding the players' physical preparation and their habits. So, what can we take from this? The important thing is to assess and have the courage to do assessments which aren't always going to be well received. There may be internal or external friction to them, but if you can try and empathise with others who may resist them and explain how it would benefit them from their perspective, it's going to increase the likelihood of them jumping on board or at least not putting up so much resistance. Alongside physically screening the players, they try to understand the actual ecosystem of football itself. And this applies just as much to the culture and the market and the company that you're working in. The culture values beliefs and behaviours surrounding physical conditioning at each premiership or foreign club their players are at were understood and studied. They also needed to understand friction points. And one of these was to develop a stronger sense of connection between England and the clubs themselves. So they tried to understand the club's world better and their view and invite the clubs also to understand England's. Throughout this process, they actually worked with the government's nudge unit, which is now the Behavioural Insights team, to understand the players and how to influence their behaviour with the help of Mike Naylor, the nutritionist. They learnt that players will only change their behaviours if either their capability, opportunity or motivation for that behaviour improves. This is what's known as the COMBI model, C-O-M-B. Capability refers to an individual's physical and psychological skills or capacity to perform that behaviour. Opportunity refers to their social and logistical opportunity to perform it. For example, what's their club culture? Do they have time to perform that behaviour? Do they have equipment available? And their motivation refers to their level of autonomy, mastery and connectedness for that behaviour. 
As I said, this forms a combi model of behavior change, which I've utilized before actually with pretty good success in the environments I've worked in. And understanding which of these to leverage is really crucial. So what did they do? Well, from the Russia World Cup to the Euros, they tried to identify what the things were in each of the above areas that will stop players getting to the start line and being able to perform at their best. Was it their capability? Maybe their opportunity? Or maybe their motivation, which would be the greatest lever? This approach allowed them to be far more specific and deliberate, which increased the chance of success for each player as their approach was individualized and hyper-focused. Culture can sometimes be very ethereal and abstract, and Ben said that you need to get specific and discreet for each individual. What behaviors do you want to see, and how can you influence their capability, opportunity, or motivation to achieve these? It definitely requires some work up front, but the payoff is huge, and they saw the development of players go through the roof. The next thing that we discussed was reframing and leveraging failure. In any challenging endeavor, the balance of failure to success is heavily skewed towards failure, and you've got to be accepting of that. The research tends to show that you only need to see a glimmer of success every now and again to keep motivated. An example of this is riding a bike or learning to ride one. You suddenly do it once and it changes your whole motivation towards it. And this obviously relates to successful leadership practices within your own company. So alongside accepting you'll fail more than you'll succeed, the ability to emotionally detach yourself from failure and even success at times is really important from a leadership standpoint. And there's a really interesting approach in Olympic sports which Ben spoke about called a pre-mortem, which is in essence preparing for failure up front so you can be more objective, less emotionally attached when it does happen and have a plan. We then moved on to Ben's approach and thoughts on how to continuously succeed and I asked him the question how sustainable is it to go all in on an endeavor it was interesting his answer he said that in order to be the best in the world citing the serial olympic gold medalists and most successful footballers in the world that he's worked with the one commonality is that they're masters of their craft and are ruthlessly focused on the pursuit of that they're meticulous and they're obsessed about every detail but they also possess the ability to shift their energy and focus away from the craft to their family or to other endeavors. And when they're off, they're off. Having said that, he has worked with several athletes who've been suicidal when they retire and believes it's because their identity is solely who they are as an athlete. So it's less about the ability to actually switch off and more about the ability to switch on to something entirely different. For example, being with your family. Balance isn't the aspiration in Ben's view. Ego detachment and the ability to be hyper-focused on whatever it is you're doing is the aspiration. And I thought this was mindfulness personified. In regards to leadership lessons for listeners, the best coaches he's worked with teach athletes how to respond to failure and these stressful situations. The challenge threat axis has been known in sport for quite some time. And it ultimately explains how your perception of a situation creates vastly different physical and psychological responses to it. With England, they practice this with penalties, looking at them as a challenge or opportunity rather than a threat to their success. And Ben made it a point that it doesn't mean you have to train for every single disaster scenario, but ultimately you need to teach your team how to respond to highly stressful situations as a leader. He mentioned that whilst they screen for this ability to reframe failure in special forces selection, there's a meritocracy within football where you can't get to the top. 
playing for one of the best clubs in the world without having developed it to a certain extent. But he does believe that how you respond to any situation is a dynamic fluctuating entity, providing the example of a burglar and the baseball bat scenario where you may respond differently depending on how your day has been. So there's a natural screening process which takes place in sport, that's apparent. But the environment and culture you have can provide individuals with more opportunities to further expose and understand their ability to reframe failure. Ultimately, coaches and leaders have the task of finding the right balance in their team. As an example, do you have a team of complete warriors who run headfirst into challenge, or do you have maybe tactical ninjas who will sit in the background waiting for others to run? There's never a situation without risk or consequence, but it's about knowing what those risks are and being comfortable stepping into them. That's a coach's and leader's job. The final points that Ben spoke about was how it's really crucial just to celebrate your wins. His best moments that he reported were beating Germany at Wembley and seeing his brother and his wife singing Sweet Caroline having beaten Denmark in the semis. Alongside this, seeing the fruits of the England football staff's labour in observing culture change towards training genuinely brought a tear to his eye. But in reality, he was very humble and said that the seeds were planted long before his time and he was just fortunate to see them blossom. To finish off, Ben talked about the five most important things for a high-performing team. And in his opinion, they are the five C's. Clarity, consistency, confidence, competence and contribution. So I hope there's been some nice insights there for yourselves and some takeaways that you can apply immediately. The three key takeaways that I'd like to draw out from that are number one, identity eats culture for breakfast. You need to understand who you are. Everything else is a byproduct of this. It can't be that you say you're one thing and you behave in a different way or you aren't who you say you are. People will see straight through it. The next key takeaway is to have two ears and one mouth and it's so often spoken about but so often missed. You need to understand your people in order to understand what they need. Then you can compassionately challenge them. The third and final key takeaway is to reframe and leverage failure. You're going to fail a hell of a lot more than you'll win and you're missing a huge growth opportunity if you don't leverage this. So I hope you enjoyed the conversation and those takeaways and insights. Thanks as always for listening and I'm looking forward to catching up again soon.